Mind Over John will begin in just a moment. But first a preview from the liminal lands. You can kind of see why I don't really trust time anymore. It's just as messed up as everything else in this hell I've found myself in. And, uh, of course, um, my kids, my wife, mom, they're gone too, just, just like everybody else. I came so close to losing it right then. Sometimes too much is just too much, but after all of that, I didn't even have the energy to have a really good breakdown. Instead, I ate a cold can of ravioli. Had to eat it cold because, along with everything else, electricity seems to have up and vanished. I'm not really surprised. If there's no people, why would I expect any electricity? So I ate, and I fell down exhausted. And that pretty much brings us up to date to where we are now and the decision I was talking about earlier. So I woke up, I found this old mini-tape voice recorder somebody got me for Christmas a few years ago, shoved some batteries in and started talking. I briefly considered ending it all, just taking a shotgun to myself and checking out for good. But I can't do that. You see, I may not know what's going on here, where everyone's went, what's happened, but my family might still be out there somewhere. And if they are, I'm not going to check out and leave them in this place alone. You see, that's, that's my decision. To live and to get my family back. It's still dark out. I really don't know how long it's going to stay that way. But I'm leaving as soon as I gather a few things. If anyone ever hears this, just have to say to my wife, Nicole, to my kids, Winter, Renee, Willow, if you guys are out there somewhere, I'm coming for you. And to whatever or whoever has taken my family from me, I'm coming for you too. And there is nothing on this earth that can stop me. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Liminal Lands was written and performed by Wayman Alexander. Okay, I want to thank you for listening. I also want to say a few things, but you won't be missing any of the story or anything of real importance if you want to just skip this and go on to the next episode if it's been released. When I started doing all of the research on how to distribute a podcast, I came across a lot of places that suggest putting in what they called a call to action segment. I guess that's the equivalent of YouTubers saying, you know, smash that thumb or ring that bell or whatever. And basically, you're supposed to ask for reviews on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. I have something to say about that. This entire thing is basically a passion project of mine from start to finish. I've never tried to do anything like this before, and I'm sure that probably shows. I'm learning, and hopefully I'm improving in my editing, my acting, my storytelling, all of that. While I don't plan on making money off of this... So I don't need the reviews for that. I would really appreciate your feedback, constructive criticism, or whatever else you have. And leaving a review is one way to do that. But other than that, you can also contact me at theliminallands at gmail.com. And as long as you're pleasant, I will respond. Sometimes it takes me a little bit to check my mail, but I will respond. Again, I just want to say, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. Story, say thank you. River, say thank you. Thank you. 
Please come back in a week for the next episode. Chapter 13, in which Passapartout receives a new proof that fortune favors the brave. The project was a bold one, full of difficulty, perhaps impracticable. Mr. Fogg was going to risk life, or at least liberty, and therefore the success of his tour. But he did not hesitate, and he found in Sir Francis Cromarty an enthusiastic ally. As for Passapartout, he was ready for anything that might be proposed. His master's idea charmed him, he perceived a heart, a soul, under that icy exterior. He began to love Phileas Fogg. There remained the guide, what course would he adopt? Would he not take part with the Indians? In default of his assistance, it was necessary to be assured of his neutrality. Sir Francis frankly put the question to him. Officers? Replied the guide. I am a Parsi, and this woman is a Parsi. Command me as you will. Excellent said Mr. Fogg. However, resumed the guide. It is certain, not only that we shall risk our lives, but horrible tortures, if we are taken. That is foreseen, replied Mr. Fogg. I think we must wait till night before acting. I think so, said the guide. The worthy Indian then gave some account of the victim, who, he said, was a celebrated beauty of the Parsi race, and the daughter of a wealthy Bombay merchant. She had received a thoroughly English education in that city, and, from her manners and intelligence, would be thought an European. Her name was Auda. Left an orphan, she was married against her will to the old Raja of Bundelkund, and, knowing the fate that awaited her, she escaped, was retaken, and devoted by the Raja, relatives, who had an interest in her death, to the sacrifice from which it seemed she could not escape. The Parsi's narrative only confirmed Mr. Fogg and his companions in their generous design. It was decided that the guide should direct the elephant towards the pagoda of Palaji, which he accordingly approached as quickly as possible. They halted, half an hour afterwards, in a copse, some 500 feet from the pagoda, where they were well concealed, but they could hear the groans and cries of the fakirs distinctly. They then discussed the means of getting at the victim. The guide was familiar with the pagoda of Palaji, in which, as he declared, the young woman was imprisoned. Could they enter any of its doors while the whole party of Indians was plunged in a drunken sleep, or was it safer to attempt to make a hole in the walls? This could only be determined at the moment and the place themselves, but it was certain that the abduction must be made that night, and not when, at break of day, the victim was, led to her funeral pyre. Then no human intervention could save her. As soon as night fell, about six o'clock, they decided to make a reconnaissance around the pagoda. The cries of the fakirs were just ceasing, the Indians were in the act of plunging themselves into the drunkenness caused by liquid opium mingled with hemp, and it might be possible to slip between them to the temple itself. The Parsi, leading the others, noiselessly crept through the wood, and in ten minutes they found themselves on the received a thoroughly English education in that city, and, from her manners and intelligence, would be thought an European. Her name was Auda. Left an orphan, she was married against her will to the old Raja of Bundelkund, and, knowing the fate that awaited her, she escaped, was retaken, and devoted by the Raja's relatives, who had an interest in her death, to the sacrifice, from which it seems she could not escape. The Parsi's narrative only confirmed Mr. Fogg and his companions in their generous design. It was decided that the guide should direct the elephant towards the pagoda of Palaji, which he accordingly approached as quickly as possible. They halted, half an hour afterwards, in a copse, some 500 feet from the pagoda, where they were well concealed, but they could hear the groans and cries of the fakirs distinctly. They then discussed the means of getting at the victim. The guide was familiar with the pagoda of Palaji, in which, as he declared, 
the young woman was imprisoned. Could they enter any of its doors while the whole party of Indians was plunged in a drunken sleep, or was it safer to attempt to make a hole in the walls? This could only be determined at the moment and the place themselves, but it was certain that the abduction must be made that night, and not when, at break of day, the victim was led to her funeral pyre, then no human intervention could save her. As soon as night fell, about six o'clock, they decided to make a reconnaissance around the pagoda. The cries of the fakirs were just ceasing, the Indians were in the act of plunging themselves into the drunkenness caused by liquid opium mingled with hemp, and it might be possible to slip between them to the temple itself. The Parsi, leading the others, noiselessly crept through the wood, and in ten minutes they found themselves on the banks of a small stream, whence, by the light of the rosin torches, they perceived a pyre of wood, on the top of which lay the embalmed body of the Raja, which was to be burned with his wife. The pagoda, whose minarets loomed above the trees in the deepening dusk, stood a hundred steps away. Come! whispered the guide. He slipped more cautiously than ever through the brush, followed by his companions, the silence around was only broken by the low murmuring of the wind among the branches. Soon the Parsi stopped on the borders of the glade, which was lit up by the torches. The ground was covered by groups of the Indians, motionless in their drunken sleep, it seemed a battlefield strewn with the dead. Men, women, and children lay together the background, among the trees, the pagoda, of Palaji loomed distinctly. Much to the guide's disappointment, the guards of the Raja, lighted by torches, were watching at the doors and marching to and fro with naked sabers, probably the priests, too, were watching within. The Parsi, now convinced that it was impossible to force an entrance to the temple, advanced no farther, but led his companions back again. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty also saw that nothing could be attempted in that direction. They stopped, and engaged in a whispered colloquy. It is only eight now, said the brigadier. And these guards may also go to sleep. It is not impossible. Returned the Parsi. They lay down at the foot of a tree, and waited. The time seemed long, the guide ever and anon left them to take an observation on the edge of the wood, but the guards watched steadily by the glare of the torches, and a dim light crept through the windows of the pagoda. They waited till midnight, but no change took place among the guards, and it became apparent that their yielding to sleep could not be counted on. The other plan must be carried out, an opening in the walls of the pagoda must be carried out, an opening in the walls of the pagoda must be made. It remained to ascertain whether the priests were watching by the side of their victim as assiduously as were the soldiers at the door. After a last consultation, the guide announced that he was ready for the attempt, and advanced, followed by the others. They took a roundabout way, so as to get at the pagoda on the rear. They reached the walls about half past twelve, without having met anyone, here there was no guard, nor were there either windows or doors. The night was dark. The moon, on the wane, scarcely left the horizon, and was covered with heavy clouds, the height of the trees deepened the darkness. It was not enough to reach the walls, an opening in them must be accomplished, and to attain this purpose the party only had their pocket knives. Happily the temple walls were built of brick and wood, which could be penetrated with little difficulty, after one brick had been taken out, the rest would yield easily. They set noiselessly to work, and the Parsi on one side and Pasipartu on the other began to loosen the bricks so as to make an aperture two feet wide. They were getting on rapidly, when suddenly a cry was heard in the interior of the temple, followed almost instantly by other cries replying from the outside. Pasipartu and the guide stopped. Had they been hurt? Was the alarm being given? Common prudence urged them to retire, and they did so, followed by Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis. They again hid themselves in the wood and waited till the disturbance, 
whatever it might be, ceased, holding themselves ready to resume their attempt without delay. But, awkwardly enough, the guards now appeared at the rear of the temple, and there installed themselves, in readiness to prevent a surprise. It would be difficult to describe the disappointment of the party, thus interrupted in their work. They could not now reach the victim, how, then, could they save her? Sir Francis shook his fists, Passepartout was beside himself. And the guide gnashed his teeth with rage. The tranquil fog waited, without betraying any emotion. We have nothing to do but to go away. Whispered Sir Francis. Nothing but to go away? Echoed the guide. Stop. Said Fogg. I am only due at Halahabad tomorrow before noon. But what can you hope to do? Asked Sir Francis. In a few hours it will be daylight, and, the chance which now seems lost may present itself at the last moment. Sir Francis would have liked to read Phileas Fogg's eyes. What was this cool Englishman thinking of? Was he planning to make a rush for the young woman at the very moment of the sacrifice, and boldly snatch her from her executioners? This would be utter folly, and it was hard to admit that Fogg was such a fool. Sir Francis consented, however, to remain to the end of this terrible drama. The guide led them to the rear of the glade, where they were able to observe the sleeping groups. Meanwhile Passapartout, who had perched himself on the lower branches of a tree, was resolving an idea which had at first struck him like a flash, and which was now firmly lodged in his brain. He had commenced by saying to himself, What folly! And then he repeated, Why not, after all? It's a chance, perhaps the only one, and with such dogs. Thinking thus, he slipped, with the suppleness of a serpent, to the lowest branches, the ends of which bent almost to the ground. Thinking thus, he slipped, with the suppleness of a serpent, to the lowest branches, the ends of which bent almost to the ground. The hours passed, and the lighter shades now announced the approach of day, though it was not yet light. This was the moment. The slumbering multitude became animated, the tambourines sounded, songs and cries arose, the hour of the sacrifice had come. The doors of the pagoda swung open, and a bright light escaped from its interior, in the midst of which Mr. Fogg and Sir Francis espied the victim. She seemed, having shaken off the stupor of intoxication, to be striving to escape from her executioner. Sir Francis's heart throbbed, and, convulsively seizing Mr. Fogg's hand, found in it an open knife. Just at this moment the crowd began to move. The young woman had again fallen into a stupor caused by the fumes of hemp, and passed among the fakirs, who escorted her with their wild, religious cries. Phileas Fogg and his companions, mingling in the rear ranks of the crowd, followed, and in two minutes they reached the banks of the stream, and stopped fifty paces from the fire, upon which still lay the Raj's corpse. In the semi-obscurity they saw the victim, quite senseless, stretched out beside her husband's body. Then a torch was brought, and the wood, heavily soaked with oil, instantly took fire. At this moment Sir Francis and the guide seized Phileas Fogg, who, in an instant of mad generosity, was about to rush upon the pyre. But he had quickly pushed them aside, when the whole scene suddenly changed. A cry of terror arose. The whole multitude prostrated themselves, terror-stricken, on the ground. The old Raja was not dead, then, since he rose of a sudden, like a specter, took up his wife in his arms, and descended from the pyre in the midst of the clouds of smoke, which only heightened his ghostly appearance. Fakirs and soldiers and priests, seized with instant terror, lay there, with their faces on the ground, not daring to lift their eyes and behold such a prodigy. 
the inanimate victim was borne along by the vigorous arms which supported her, and which she did not seem in the least a burden. Mr. Fogg and Sir Francis stood erect, the Parsi bowed his head, and Passepartout was, no doubt. The resuscitated Raja approached Sir Francis and Mr. Fogg, and, in an abrupt tone, said. Let us be off. It was Passepartout himself, who had slipped upon the pyre in the midst of the smoke and, profiting by the still overhanging darkness, had delivered the young woman from death. It was Passepartout who, playing his part with a happy audacity, had passed through the crowd amid the general terror. A moment after all four of the party had disappeared in the woods, and the elephant was bearing them away at a rapid pace. But the cries and noise, and a ball which whizzed through Phileas Fogg's hat, apprised them that the trick had been discovered. The old Raja's body, indeed, now appeared upon the burning pyre, and the priests, recovered from their terror, perceived that an abduction had taken place. They hastened into the forest, followed by the soldiers, who fired a volley after the fugitives, but the latter rapidly increased the distance between them, and ere long found themselves, beyond the reach of the bullets and arrows. Mind over John will return in a moment, but first a message from April. And, but I am at the point where I am desperate beyond words. Please, please don't stop reading. There is no way to encapsulate how I feel in words fully, there is no way to describe the pain I am in. So if you have time, I would appreciate you listening more than anything. Here is my story. On August 20th, I was driving on the 5 highway in Chula Vista, going approximately 65 to 70 miles per hour in the second lane, when in a matter of seconds, my life was changed forever. A car parked on the left side of the freeway with no lights on suddenly pulled out in front of me, perpendicular to the road. As a result, I t-boned him at high speed. His vehicle then spun out and hit another car with two passengers in it. He left the scene of the incident somehow, it was a hit and run. I was immediately taken to the hospital and treated for injuries to my neck and back. I suffered whiplash and a severe concussion. It was truly a miracle that I made it out without any severe injuries or even with my life. If I had turned the steering wheel even just a little bit, I would not be here typing this. This incident has taken a massive toll on me, and I already struggle with panic disorder and an unspecified mood disorder which exasperates how I am able to deal with this situation. The accident has left me with trauma that will sit with me for the rest of my life. The police did little to nothing, they didn't even go after him after the accident occurred. There is no criminal investigation into this man. There is no justice. Fortunately, the other vehicle had a dash cam and got his license plate number, so I was able to get his information. This man has multiple convictions for DUI and weapons charges. Driving under the influence is clearly a pattern for him, and now that he knows he can get away with it, he will most definitely do it again. I am doing everything in my power to ensure this happens to no one else, but there isn't much I can do. An innocent person could potentially die if this man isn't His stopped. insurance company eventually accepted liability, but I just learned that I will get very little money from it. The small amount of compensation will be split between the third party he hit and me, and then the 33% of what I get will go to my attorney. My mother does not make very much money, and my father does not want to support me financially in any way. I see GoFundMe as my only option at this point. So I am relying on the kindness of others to help me navigate this devastating situation. I worked as a delivery driver then, so both my car and job was taken from me in a blink of an eye. 
I have spent over $1,000 on Ubers, just trying to get to school. I received this money from the kind people that donated to my previous GoFundMe, but it is running out, and I still have no source of income. I rarely see my family or friends as I can't afford to visit them. I desperately need physical therapy, but again, I can't afford to get to the appointments, which are typically three times a week. On top of all that, I'm taking five classes, and the stress of this situation makes it extremely difficult for me to focus or sometimes even compose myself at school. I ran out of class today because of a panic attack. This money will allow me to get to school without spending over $30 every time, and I will be able to get the medical attention that I need. I can see my family and get food and other necessities. If you've read this far, I am beyond thankful for you listening to me and my story. Please consider helping if you are able, even just sharing this would mean the absolute world to me. I am so sorry, I absolutely hate asking others for help with things like this, but I really am stuck right now. I don't see any other way out. I relapsed into self-harm because of this situation and had very dark thoughts I cannot go into further. Please, consider or share, I'm sorry and from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you April for sharing your story with us. Here on Mind Over John, we are breaking barriers of storytelling. I want you to also understand this version was based, please share. And that's exactly what we did. You have just experienced your myad, a feature of Mind Over John. This chapter we featured a preview of the liminal lands, you can listen everywhere, and honestly you better follow to stay current. Nothing is what it seems, anything and everything is out to get you. Coming up in chapter 14 we will preview vintage video podcast. Now it's your turn. Do you want to be featured? For a limited time, I am giving you a window to do just that. If you would like to learn more on how you can help out April, the link is in this description of this podcast. Just remember anchor.fm slash mindoverjohn to follow and support. Reach out when you are ready to be featured or leave us a message and you could hear your reaction in an upcoming chapter. For now friends, our story is paused until we meet again.